Listening to the Sounds of Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Have you heard the recordings from the Red Planet? After decades of effort to put a microphone on Mars, we can finally listen to the sound of the Martian wind, thanks to NASA's Perseverance rover and the teams who worked to make its two microphones a reality. In a moment, you'll hear my interview with Jason Achilles, a musician with a passion for space who used his audio prowess to help put one of the first successful microphones on Mars. Stick around for What's Up with Bruce Betts and this week's Space Trivia Contest. In space news, Virgin Orbit's first launch from the UK hit a major snag after it lifted off from Spaceport Cornwall on January 9th. Virgin Orbit, not to be confused with its sister company Virgin Galactic, is a company that provides launch services for small satellites. Their Launcher 1 rocket suffered an anomaly sometime after it was released from its carrier plane. It was supposed to deploy nine satellites, but sadly, none of them made it into orbit. We aren't yet sure what caused the anomaly, but hopefully we'll know more soon. Meanwhile, in the United States, Representative Frank Lucas has been named chair to the U.S. House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Lucas, a Republican from Oklahoma, has served as ranking member of the Science Committee since 2019. You can learn more about these stories and glimpse a beautiful image of frost around a crater on Mars captured by the European Space Agency's Mars Express Orbiter in the January 13th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org slash downlink. In 1996, Planetary Society co-founder Carl Sagan wrote a letter to NASA urging the agency to include a microphone on their next Mars mission. It began a 25-year-long campaign here at the Planetary Society to try to get a microphone on Mars. There were several attempts to make it happen over the years, but it wasn't until the triumphant moment that NASA's Perseverance rover touched down on the Red Planet in 2021 that the dream finally became a reality. Perseverance included not one, but two microphones on board. The SuperCam mic, which records the rover's laser zaps on the Martian rocks, among other things, and the Entry, Descent, and Landing, or EDL microphone, which was meant to capture audio from the rover's landing, along with other sounds. Unfortunately, the EDL microphone didn't successfully record the landing noises, but the two mics have returned a wealth of Martian and rover noises to Earth. My guest this week is Jason Achilles a self-proclaimed extraterrestrial audio engineer and president of Zandef Dexit Incorporated. He's a composer, producer, and musician whose passion for space led him on a mission to partner with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, to make the EDL Mars microphone a reality. Thanks for joining me, Jason. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's really cool to get to talk to you again, because the last time I saw you in the real world, it was actually at Astronomy on Tap in Pasadena, and you were rocking out on a guitar. And it was right after a really long day for me. You know, it was the 240th American Astronomical Society. So to cap off that adventure, it was really cool to just chill out and watch you play your guitar. Yeah, I guess to explain to people, there's a Caltech holds an astronomy lecture every month 
in Pasadena. My band plays in between the speakers and it's a very cool experience. And it was great that you came. And I was kind of very struck by by your music style. You call it what cosmic rock, right? Other people call it that. And then I they ask me and I'm like, I don't know, that sounds as good. Yeah, cosmic space rock or something. It's it's all instrumental. It's kind of it's definitely got some atmospheric sort of Pink Floyd kind of qualities. And then there's more upbeat, like, I don't know, Jeff Beck meets Stevie Wonder ish kind of I don't know. I, as long as people like it and buy the T-shirts, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> well, I definitely enjoyed it. I kept thinking, you know, I need to pick up that guitar and learn more. But, you know, you've managed to not just play music, but find a way to apply what you learned from your musical career to something that you're very passionate about, which is space exploration. And that's part of why I wanted to talk to you, because ever since I learned that I was going to be the new host of Planetary Radio, I've been making these schemes to talk to you about this, because I feel like that's so relatable and inspiring that you went from rock star to this Mars microphone program. How did that happen? Yeah, well, I I tell people I basically have started an aerospace career just to pay for the music one, um, <laughs> which is honestly kind of sort of how it's been working out mm-hmm. lately. It's it's been it's been going pretty well. Basically, I sort of cold called NASA in the middle of um, I think it was like summer of 2016, something like that, and I'd heard that there was going to be a microphone flow in a couple months. And so I pitched myself as sort of an audio consultant and said, like, hey, if you guys need anybody, I'm in. And it turned out they they actually did. And so then I had to put together a team of engineers to basically do the more technically specific aspects of that study that I didn't know how to do. <laughs> I, you know, I understood enough about what I'd seen on the specs and thought, okay, I think I can be of value here. But then how do you apply fluid dynamics equations to acoustic research and stuff like that? I, I had no idea. So I've got an idea now, but I had them teach me as mm-hmm. we went through it. So I found these couple of brilliant audio engineers, uh, Brad Avinson and Cesar Garcia. So we got hired beginning of 2017. We did a two-month study. Dave Gruel, who hired us at JPL, he was our supervisor at JPL, and he was the one spearheading everything. And he had a couple of ideas. There was a company that had released this new product that was a good contender for various technical reasons. But actually, the, what the microphone I'm talking to you on now is a flight analog of the Mars EDL mic. So this is the exact same microphone. This was one of the test models. This is a flight analog. This is a DPA 4006 capsule into an MMA preamp, which is the exact same thing that was flown on Perseverance. Uh, they had a few very minor modifications, but acoustically, it's identical. We did have to process the audio a bit to remove some background noise, but the actual sound is untweaked, as it were. Yeah, and it's absolutely astonishing. I, I mean, I know it's just kind of the sound of wind and things like that, but I mean, getting sound from the surface of another world is so mind-blowing. It's pretty cool, yeah. I had this deep emotional moment listening to it. It's funny because audio is is discarded very readily as scientific validity sometimes. I think people sort of think of audio maybe the way they think of a painting or something. It's like this arbitrary, you know, collection of it's it's more thought of as being beautiful than useful, right? You know, audio is tricky. There's there's a lot of work we've done to make sure that everything we're doing is very authentic, you know, with how we're treating this stuff. I tell people if you want to understand the importance of audio, just put earplugs in and walk around for a day. And you'll rapidly realize how much more frustrating it is just not hearing normal audio cues. I don't know. We, we think of it as enjoyment, but it really is. There's a reason it's a sensory system. 
Absolutely. There's so much that we can learn kind of, you know, about Mars because the conditions there in the air, chemically and the atmospheric density, it's very different from what we have here on Earth. And, you know, how does that impact the sounds that we're hearing from this microphone? You know, people would ask me before this thing landed, you know, okay, assuming this thing works, what do you expect to hear? And the analogy I like to give is that it's sort of like if you were walking through the middle of Death Valley, what would you hear? You would hear yourself walking through the middle of Death Valley and not much else, you know, and you hear a little bit of atmospheric stuff. But really, to me, I think the exciting part is is hearing the sound of your own footsteps on Mars, except in this case, it's rover wheels. But, you know, one day it will be our footsteps. And then the audio becomes more useful. You know, if you're working on the surface, if you're drilling something or you're in loose terrain and you can you can hear these things, it's going to increase mobility. It'll increase your mental stability because you, you can actually it, it's one of the few sensory awareness is that we can give you a pretty accurate perception of, you know, you're never going to smell Mars, not really, you know, you're never going to feel a gust of Martian wind on your face, but you can hear the audio. We can treat the audio in such a way where it's absolutely what you would hear if you were to, you know, hold your breath, not, you know, uh, depressurize. It was (laughs) horribly (laughs) dry and (laughs) it was sticking your head out the window on Mars, but it's, it'll be one of the few sensory experiences that will be accurate. You'll never feel the unfiltered sunlight touch your face on Mars the way you do when you walk out your porch. It's a different experience, you know? Audio is one of the few things we can give you that will be absolutely correct. If you could, if you had, you know, infinite resources, what other worlds would you want to send microphones to? Well, I lobbied really hard to become part of the Dragonfly mission to Titan. My understanding is that they are working to include an audio component. I offered my services most diligently, but they're basically like, nah, we got this. I am working with some other folks on a couple different missions for Venus, and we're going to see if we can get some audio going there, which is not the first time. The Russians actually did do this back right in 1981. And the Venera missions? Venera 13, yeah, had a microphone, which I would guess that that mic that they flew on that thing probably weighs close to what the whole probe is going to way for like Russian 70s engineering, everything. I think the weren't the probes like five tons or something like insanely heavy. And the microphone, I, I've been, it's really hard to find any literature about this. As far as I can tell, it was just all completely solid stainless steel. I'm sort of guessing based on pictures I saw, it looked like it was maybe about the size of a large beer can or something like solid metal, you know, and we're hoping to send something much similar to this. And I've been working with Rocket Lab, who's sending a private mission there. And then there's the Da Vinci probe to Venus. We'll see if we can get something going there. Oh, that's so exciting. I would love to hear the sounds of Venus. Those are both atmospheric probes. So they're basically falling very fast through the atmosphere, right? What I really would like to do is, is get something flight qualified so that next time we send hot air balloons, they can float, you know, in that sort of 50 kilometer high weather balloons, basically. And then you can really just listen and maybe, you know, if you can hear the thunder from those, those lightning storms, the, the theorized lightning storms on mm-hmm. Venus. Something like that would be, I think, just the coolest thing ever. Any sound from a lightning storm on any other world would be amazing, but you just know it would be terrifying on Venus because everything is terrifying on Venus. Everything's terrifying. <laughs> Venus wants to kill you even more than Mars, and Mars really wants to kill you. It's so exciting that we're at a place in time when we can even begin to imagine and to build these missions that are going to be, you know, not just landing on a, a place like one of Saturn's moons, you know, like Titan, but sending back audio and video as well. It's it's yeah. next level. And every time we take one of these steps, it feels like, well, of course we were going to do that 
But no, it's mind blowing to me every time. It's people have no concept of how hard this stuff is. It's just very cool. Right. And your original spec for this microphone was very different. You had to go with these kind of off the shelf components. But is there anything from your original design that you really wish you could have had on this mission? Well, the, the actual capsule itself was the identical. Cool. Yeah, we would have bought this capsule anyway and integrated into a custom preamplification system. The only thing that we would have been very cool that we had built into our initial design is that you know, there was going to be a second mic of a different design, mainly for, you know, so if one fails, hopefully the other one works because they're different technologies and being affected differently by the environment. But ideally, if they both worked, you'd have a built-in stereo mic. We did put together that one stereo audio, but that was kind of a fluke that even got recorded. And it technically isn't stereo, but it doesn't sound very good compared to what it'll sound like when we do proper stereo on Mars. It will happen, but it would have been wonderful to have that capability the first time around. I know that once your time working at JPL kind of ended, you were still seeking ways to still be involved in space exploration. And you're working on a whole new project now, right? What's going on with that? The whole idea for recording audio on Mars or any other planet came from was actually initially wanting to see the sky crane maneuver, but from a remote perspective. And so the initial idea was to take a camera and as the sky crane maneuver was happening, we would eject this little camera ball with a camera inside it and a protective housing basically. And it would be recording from before you ejected it, it would hit the ground, bounce a little bit, but not too far. And uh, you'd be able to watch the sky crane maneuver, but it's a totally different thing when you can be looking at it from a short distance away. You know, it's like, you know, watching a rocket launch if you're on the rocket versus, you know, standing next to it. At the time, the friend of mine that I shared that with at JPL was like, it's too close to the mission. There's no way they're going to go for this kind of wacky new technology that nobody's done before. But then we're like, well, what about audio? And then it turned out while we were having that discussion, NASA was planning to include audio. So it all worked out. But I went back to that idea a few years ago while we were waiting for Perseverance to land and got together a team of this engineering company named Honeybee Robotics. They're an engineering company in, in um, Altadena, right down the street there from JPL. And I, I pitched this idea to them and they loved it. And so they got behind it and sunk some money into supporting it. And we built an early prototype and then we were able to get funded through NASA for a, a little over a half million dollars for an early development grant, which allowed us to test it on an actual rocket flight, but on Earth, like a suborbital rocket test. Mm -hmm. And so we did that about a year ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the footage of that in the Mojave Desert, right? Yeah. It was really wild to just kind of see, you know, these little GoPros and balls, essentially, just kind of Basically, jettisoning yeah. off the side of rockets and then just looking back at the landing. I, I mean, <laughs> anytime you get one of those moments when you can like see a spacecraft doing its thing, that's just wild. And I imagine what it would be like to just watch a lunar landing with one of these things. I want the current five-year-old future astronauts of this world to see that, you know, and like, wow, you know, they just, I want that to be normalized, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, another rocket landing on another planet that we get to watch. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. That's what we're doing now. We're, we're basically looking to get more funding to get this thing flight qualified for space travel. There's a lot of private landers going to the moon in the next few years. There will be, you know, bigger missions to Mars coming soon. And so we want on board and uh, we'll see what happens. Just one more way to make space more accessible and exciting for everyone. You know, I think exciting is, yeah, that's the key, right? I mean, 
probably you guys are all like this, you know, a lot of engineers in the aerospace world are like this too, where you say like, well, when did you get excited in space? And it's like, well, they were like about five, six years old. And it was something, depending on how old they are, maybe it was the Apollo landings, or maybe it was the space shuttle, or this stuff is, you know, people are like, well, why do we send people to other worlds? And like, because it's inspiring, you know, and why would you not do something like that? Yeah, it costs a few bucks, but so does a lot of other way dumber stuff that we do. So, and you know, yes, it's money. And yes, that money goes into a lot of jobs here on earth, but it does. how do you, how do you put a price tag on that level of hope and inspiration and international collaboration? I, I mean, I was six years old when I decided that I wanted to dedicate my life to space. See, there you go. Five, six years old. Boom. And here you are, you know, educating, inspiring kids and adults. And yeah, how do you put a price tag on it? Um, I mean, I guess you could work it out in terms of like, you know, tax revenue and support, public support and funding for things. But, you know, I mean, nobody says it better than Carl Sagan, right? And he talks about us being a nomadic species by definition. And he, he says this much more poetically than I do. You know, the, if we didn't have the intrinsic desire to explore, we would never have survived this long. Like exploration is a, is a necessary fundamental part of of our existence just the same as procreation you know you can't stay sedentary as a species you know we're, we're exercising our our evolutionarily implied right to explore you know and this time we don't have to subjugate anybody or step on anybody's heads or you know maybe there's some microbes that might be a little mad at us but for the first time, humanity can exercise these these feelings of exploration and, you know, you could even say conquest of this, this new terrain, but without actually doing anything terrible to other humans, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and there's something really, I think, deeply honorable about that level of exploration, you know, and taking a lot of technologies that were developed for warfare, you know, rocketry and all these things and putting them towards exploration and science and imagination. It's good stuff. Good, good. Go, go humans. Well said. Just personally, I'd, I'd like to thank you for the role that you played in bringing us Mars microphones and helping bring to life this thing that Carl Sagan wanted back, you know, a few years after our founding. I think he would have been really excited to listen to the sounds of Mars. And that's a thing now. We, we get to look forward to a future where that's just a thing now. <laughs> it's amazing. People should do themselves a favor and just go to YouTube and Google Carl Sagan message to Mars. And if you're not tearing up at the end of that, you might want to see a therapist because it's really it's and it was recorded the just the same year he died. I mean, that's that's a true poet and science communicator saying all the things that we've been stumbling through. Um, but it really is beautiful. And uh, yeah, he, he, he outlines it all pretty well. And thank you for doing this. I mean, science communication is so vital now. And now's the right time to inspire all these kids, you know. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that there's a whole new generation of kids out there that are getting excited about space. I'll tell you, I've been the last couple of years with all this going on with the Mars Audio, I've, I've spoken to a lot of classrooms and a lot of young kids and space is just, it seems to be a level of cool that even like jaded high schoolers can't really turn away from, which is pretty impressive. You know, like I think anything less than an astronaut and they're like, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> astronaut still wins. Well, making more astronauts one recording at a time. Heck yeah. Well, thanks for being with me, Jason. I really appreciate it. And hopefully I'll hear more from you in the future when some other cool, amazing microphone gets put on another world. <laughs> thanks so much, Jason.
You can hear the extended version of my interview with Jason Achilles, the rock star who helped make the Mars entry, descent, and landing microphone a reality, along with a bonus segment on how to see a comet later this month in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up with Bruce Betts after a short break. There is so much going on in space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts. I am joined once more by the ever-amazing Bruce Betts. Welcome back, Bruce. Hello, Incredible Sarah. (laughs) So, Bruce, what's up? Well, planets coming together. Venus and Saturn going to snuggle up next to each other, but they're low in the western horizon shortly after sunset. Venus looking super bright like it does. Saturn looking yellowish, and they will uh, get closer until the 22nd, and then they will grow apart with Saturn slipping out of sight and Venus coming up higher and being with us for several months of me telling you, hey, it's super bright Venus over low in the west in the early evening, although it'll get higher. And if you follow a line from those guys up, you'll get to Jupiter looking bright and follow that line across to almost the other side of the sky and high up above you'll find Mars, which is making a nice pairing with Aldebaran, the reddish star in Taurus, with Mars being the brighter one for now anyway. It continues to dim as it gets farther away from the Earth. And I was just outside in between torrential rainstorms and back in the normal clear skies of Southern California last night, and the winter constellations are looking lovely in the evening. We've got Orion and all of its friends uh, up high in the evening, so check those out as well. All right, we move on to this week in space history. 1986, Voyager 2 flies past Uranus, giving us our one and only spacecraft flyby so far of Uranus and its friends. By friends, I mean moons and rings. Well, you get it. 2006... Headed to the outer solar system, another spacecraft launches New Horizons off towards Pluto and Arakoth and deep, deep space. And so that's our This Week in Space History this week. To this day, I still encounter people that have no idea that we flew by Pluto and took images of it. So No, it's actually the outline of, of the Disney character Pluto. <laughs> Let's go on to huh? Random Space Fact. 
So I just want to mention, for those who aren't familiar with how important explosive bolts are in space exploration, it just sounds terrifying. But these pyrotechnic systems or pyros are on pretty much every rocket and spacecraft out there to separate things. So I know the Perseverance and Curiosity had 76 pyros that had to successfully blow to break the connections at the right times as they landed. They're just everywhere. They're omnipresent. These little explosives inside bolts and nuts to make them break at the right time. I just think it's cool. And I want to make sure the world knew. Yeah, what's interesting about space exploration is that there are so many ways that things can explode. And only a few of them are the good ones, but they're the ones that we need to actually do the thing. Yeah, these are very small. They're just enough. They're very localized shape to break apart a connection, holding a rocket down, holding fairings on, or uh, holding upper stage thingies to lower stage thingies. That's the technical term. All right, we go on to the trivia question. I asked you about an, an old-timey video game that was related to the solar system in such an important way. I asked you, what planetary system was the setting for the majority of the original Doom video game? How'd we do? We did really well, actually. Better than expected. It took me quite a while to go through just the massive amounts of people that came in for the trivia contest this week. Of course, uh, people who are gamers or fans of old video games will know that the original Doom video game was actually set on Mars. Or rather, I think it was uh, partially set on one of its moons. Uh, Phobos, is that correct? Yes, it was mostly on FOMOS, I believe some on Deimos and parts of the games I never got to, uh, but I believe it was a space marine, I don't know, that's usually the thing, stationed on Mars who went up to Phobos, and of course his entire group got killed and he had to work his way for some reason through level after level of hideous monsters, which is totally the way Phobos is. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but the dice have spoken, and this week we have two winners. First winner is Jean-Marc Bonnard from Lausanne, Switzerland. And winner number two is Tim Johnson from Walnut Creek, California, who wrote in, long-time listener, first-time caller, <laughs> classic. <laughs> there are two things I loved in my childhood in the 90s, outer space and video games, which I relate to a lot. So <laughs> I hope both Jean-Marc and Tim Johnson enjoy their beautiful images of Matt Kaplan that are signed by him. Matt Kaplan, of course, Planetary Radio's creator and former host. We also had a bunch of different messages come in from people, many of them gaming related, but I, I did really like this one. It's from longtime listener Mel, briefly Frogger Master Powell from Sherman Oaks, California, <laughs> <laughs> who said in law school X years ago, a bunch of us went to a Westwood Village arcade one evening and for about two hours while surrounded by teens, I had the high score on Frogger, still a career and life highlight. Wow, that is. We also got a message from Neil Ashelman from Bettendorf, Iowa, who says, For the first time, Ad Astra, Sarah, congrats on a wonderful first episode, and thanks for including me in the audio welcome. It was a treat. And if anybody out there hasn't listened to my first show that came out on January 4th, we added a cute compilation of all the wonderful audio messages that we got from people who called into our hotline. So thank you, Neil. I, I really enjoyed your message and all of the other messages from people who called in. All right. I think it's time for this week's space trivia question. All right. Speaking of sounds from space, whose voice was the first to be broadcast 
from space. Whose voice was the first to be broadcast from space? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. We'll see how many people get this one right. And this week, we will be selecting two winners. And the prize is a NASA International Space Station 2023 calendar. And of course, by the time you receive it, January will probably be over. But there are still 11 more months in this trip around the sun for you to use the calendar. But if you would like to join the Space Trivia Contest for this week, you have until Wednesday, January 25th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about your favorite date on a calendar. Thank you, and good night. That was Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with Scott Bolton, the principal investigator for NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Mars-crazed members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.